All right, Sam, why don't you just tell us real quick how you passed uh, your undergrad philosophy courses? Yeah, I passed contemporary ethical theory. Um, hardly. The first half of the course, I was just doing terribly on the papers, doing terribly on the tests. There were daily quizzes, and I was just not doing great on those. And then I started quoting McIntyre in every single paper and did not get anything less than 100 on those papers. And the prof was saying how great it was to integrate all these different external ideas into um, into the subjects we were reading about. And I'm sitting here thinking it was the same two chapters from the same book that answered all of contemporary ethical theory. So just goes to show that McIntyre is the greatest. And I think that's what we call the problem of reading. Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of The Problem with Reading. I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. And I'm Sam. Still good to hear that, isn't it? It really is. It is. Just feels yeah. complete, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How did we just... decide that order? I mean, Steven was the first one to, to stick around, and then Sam just joined us, the special guest, and you were, uh, are, of course, the permanent special guest. Obviously. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm pretty sure that's that's more or less how it happened. Um, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, Brevin's always kind of run point on a lot of the organization of the podcast, so he's kind of the one that kicks us off, which makes sense. Yeah. yeah. And honestly, any other order at, at this point would just feel very wrong somehow. I feel yeah, like. we are kind of this frozen like in this. One of these days, we should just do it in completely the wrong order. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. yeah okay. Uh, so, <laughs> we'll have an so, opposite day episode. Yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm gonna cut this, but uh, Sam, just try and do the intro. And then I'll go last. Oh, it just yeah. feels wrong. Okay. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Problem with Reading podcast. I'm Sam. I'm Steven. And I'm Brevin. Oh, that sounds so weird. I don't like that. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, no. And I, I even had the benefit of going in the same way. Like, I'm still second regardless. It just felt, that felt weird. It felt very wrong. I don't like that. No, okay. Yeah. Oh, I feel like I need to go take a shower now. <laughs> All right, well, let's uh, press on. Uh, so what are we drinking right now, Sam? I am drinking some uh, Twinings Earl Grey tea um, with sugar out of an Anglican church mug. Very nice. Very nice. And uh, yeah. Stephen, I, I think you also have tea? Uh, I do indeed. I'm drinking some matcha, and I am, uh, I guess, celebrating the ivory tower of the CMSE, uh, my uh, my department at MSU. Very nice. So, uh, Sam is better for me than me. Ah. Yes, yes. Uh, as for myself, I am drinking a lovely glass of um, Four Roses uh, bourbon inspired by my former housemate and former guest on this podcast, Zach. He would always get Four Roses bourbon, although I'm pretty sure he would get a different version of Four Roses than I would because this isn't as good as the bourbon that he had. So I need to check with you, Zach. Uh, if you're listening, send me a text about what that, what was the actual uh, label that you got because I'm pretty sure that I got the wrong one. Wait, are there tiers of Four Roses? I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, I think there are. Yeah, well, you know, just like small batch or like whatever. Uh, and I think yeah, I just yeah. got whatever not he, that he got. But it could also just taste better in the company of Zach. That's possible. It's very good. That's, that's true. We'll, we'll have to have him back on and experiment with that. Um. Uh, but speaking of experimenting with things, how about we experiment with this fun stuff called written language and stuff? And uh, here we are uh, with after. 
No, we're not, we don't have after virtue. My God, I almost did that. Uh, here oh. we are. Okay, no, no. See, the reason is is that I went and reread part of the after virtue chapter on the ancient world because I was like, mm -hmm. okay, what are the similarities in between these two? But anyway, oh, nice. we are on the master and his emissary, chapter eight, the ancient world. <laughs> Starting with a look at the Greeks, and I think uh, Sam, that you were going to yeah. lead us off here. Yeah, so uh, Miguel Chris starts by looking at Milton Brenner's analysis of faces um, in art for, in art in ancient Greece, and faces were originally quite abstracted. We didn't see human faces until very late in um, our ancient world, and that signifies less right hemisphere, is what he says. Um, as the Greeks developed painting, we started to see more emotional faces, and indeed we saw the entire body shift um, from facing uh, left to facing right, thus exposing the left side of their body or the right hemisphere. So that, all that aside, we see in the Greek art um, a shift towards the right hemisphere. But also Greece brought in some um, left hemisphere-driven subjects, such as analytic philosophy, and uh, legal systems. These were all happening through the process of stepping back, however. So he basically says that even though we were developing less left hemisphere disciplines, the brain was also stepping back and looking at the entire context of which those were situated, thus keeping them within the right hemisphere. We're making an objective claim within the subjective right hemisphere. Um, this view of the whole also leads to developing a philosophy of beauty. At this time, we're basically seeing both hemispheres forming and developing themselves differently. Um, and we're seeing the divide is actually being formalized. Uh, Julian James talks a bit about this in his book, The Origin of Consciousness in the Breakdown of the Bicamel Mind, an amazing title for a book. Um, this was probably the the only other work, or at least the only other work that uh, Milgaro Chris talks about, that actually looks at where the uh, brain divide factored into our view of the ancient world. James talks about how the voice of God in the Iliad and the Old Testament was indeed people hearing the voices of their unconscious for the first time. As consciousness was arising and as they were developing this inner voice, they ascribed it to God. Um, James then says that we call this schizophrenia today but it's really just the primal enlightenment of our inner voice. Uh, McGillicurst thinks this is interesting, and indeed I think it's an interesting and novel theory, but false. Um, schizophrenia is actually quite a modern phenomenon, as McGillicurst points out. It's hyper-rational, hyper-reflexive, and extremely self-aware, um, which James would not agree with. So this divide is slowly happening, um, and it's indeed sowing the seeds for left hemisphere isolationism, as he says on page 262. In archaic Greek, Homeric epic suggested a developed right hemisphere. Uh, the person doesn't have a body or is not inhabiting a body, but rather is a body. Um, and the mind is seen as more of a process, uh, something ongoing, something contextual within a greater story. All very obviously right hemisphere. We, he then looks at a few different thinkers who specifically. Um, were influential in classical Greek, starting with basically the invention of philosophy. There were two steps that were happening at the same time. Um, first, the balance, um, balancing and recognizing the primacy of the right hemisphere and the necessary distancing of, um, from the world, followed by a move towards hard, calculated intellect, both sides of the brain operating fully. Uh, Thales developed math develops multiple different mathematical theories and prediction, even being able to predict the solar eclipse, um, and basically established that the primary principle of all things was water, reducing all of the existence to a core matter that could be um, tangible, very left hemisphere of him. His student, 
an Eximander, said that all things actually return from, uh, arise from and return to an unbounded state. Uh, basically saying that we are all part of a process, not necessarily things, an insight from the right hemisphere. So there's a little bit of a dialectic between those two in these two thinkers. I just want to jump in here and say that an Eximander would be a great name for a Pokemon. Just throwing that out there. Good point. That actually does remind me there is uh, a great online test. Is it in, uh, I, it's either like ancient philosopher or church father or something, or is it a Pokemon? Would highly recommend. That would be a difficult test. I'm not sure if I could pass it, given I did not play Pokemon growing up. And I'm also not Catholic. The church fathers are fathers of the whole church, Sam. Get over yourself. Well, they are, but I'm not well catechized. So I want and to. And that's learn. why you're not Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> Heraclitus, he said some stuff. Um, he said that we must approach nature with flexibility, um, basically not using the standard, most overt tool of analysis. Um, and he acknowledges that nature is actually quite misleading. Um, it's a misleading representation to us, uh, kind of harkening back to exactly what the um, left hemisphere experiences a representation of what the right hemisphere is experiencing. Attending to the experience, he said that we need to extend to our experience without any preconceptions. And if we do that, we'll understand logos, um, basically truth. Even more, by bringing two opposites together, we can create a greater understanding of the whole and even a new understanding of both. Uh, Nicocris says that out of everybody, Heraclitus seems to grasp that the balance of hemispheres along with the primacy of the right world in stepping near truth. Paramendes um, responds to this even more, saying that con uh, contradiction equals error, not truth. Basically, the entire world is static, and any movement would imply nothingness. You can see an obvious connection to Zeno, and indeed, Zeno was his student. So these ideas flowed through um, his more popular student. Um, but Paramendes said that logic is the prime um, method that we should use to ascertain the universe and logic is even more significant than what we see as truth or uh, what we experience through our daily lives. Um, Heidegger actually looks back at Paramendes and rescues him by saying that Paramendes and Heraclitus were actually saying the exact same thing. Uh, Megalocris circles this back to part one. The left brain will eventually lead itself right back to the right brain. Um, Plato argues against Paramendes, saying that to say that all of our um, contradictions that we experience and even our experiences themselves are error means that we cannot participate in uh, gaining knowledge. Uh, even still, Paramendes' ideas about truth needing to be absolutely logically consistent did factor into Plato's argument about knowledge being unchanging, that we can't know things for sure if they're changing or particular. Uh, at, the, at the end of the day, the left hemisphere ideal mode was adopted by this, um, uh, it was adopted in philosophy. On the other hand, drama was a different story, where drama was allowed to uh, allow the Greeks to play out stories contextually and indeed see a greater truth through that whole. Um, I won't go too much into that just because I know a lot more about philosophy than drama, but Miguel Chris does show that drama and philosophy are balancing each other. Now onto the written word. Um, there are four moves that happened in the written word in Greece, all pre before the fifth century, that allowed it to move from being more right hemisphere focused to left hemisphere focused. Uh, the first, let me actually grab those because I wrote them down and deleted them, which was a dumb move. Um, those four moves are uh, the move from pictograms to phonograms, uh, the yielding of syllabic phonograms to phonetic alphabet, um, the inclusion of vowel signs, and even the direction of the writing all imply a left hemisphere lead. 
So he works through the history of writing um, in this way. Uh, the pictograms to phonograms is a movement towards abstraction, where the um, object or the, the text on the ink on the page does not actually reflect the object that it is um, pertaining to, it merely represents it. Um, from phonograms to the phonetic alphabet is moving, um, is, is shifting context. Um, a syllabic alphabet is basically a whole, it is looking at the whole. Each syllable has meaning in and of itself. And so you combine those different syllables to create compounding meaning. Uh, in a phonetic alphabet, each part doesn't have any meaning. You'd merely use a um, formula to compile the words as they are, um, as they exist. Vowel, by adding in vowels, you further remove the unconscious processing of the words, and you remove the context-based nature of the individual syllables. Meaning is far more formulaic and dictated. Obviously, linguistics is not my strength, but this is just a summary of what he's saying. Um, and then finally, the direction of the writing. Uh, the left hemisphere or the right hemisphere would like to read things vertically. And actually, he establishes kind of blanket statement that the right hemisphere looks at the world vertically and the left horizontally, um, which I think he talked about earlier. But if the right hemisphere was reading, it would like to read things vertically and starting from the right to the left, um, thus pulling towards the eye controlled by the right hemisphere, the left eye. The left uh, hemisphere would like to read things from the left to right and horizontally. Uh, the right hemisphere would like it top to bottom. The left would like it bottom to top. Now, obviously, our current method of reading is indeed far more towards the left hemisphere, though not exactly. When you look at Greek writing, you see a slow shift in this direction from vertical pictograms to, um, uh, to the phonograms to the phonetic alphabet. And then finally, switching from a right to left form of writing to a um, as the ox plows form, which is literally right to left and then left to right, alternating lines, and then finally left to right, showing the left hemisphere slowly taking over the way that we even read. All right, on to you, Brevin. Yes, indeed. So after the slow encroachment of the left hemisphere uh, on the way that we write and read, McGilchrist then goes into money and its development uh, in Greece and it just as a epiphenomenon of the left hemisphere's slow increase in dominance. And his quote is something like, the ambiguous god of wine and death yielded the stage to Apollo and the triumph of rationality to theoretical and practical utilitarianism and to democracy, the horror. Uh, but the book tempers Nietzsche's, as I said, drama queen view, because uh, later Greece also has quite a balanced set of developments as well. Like you have the humanist developments of things like drama and poetry and sculpture, whereas on the more left hemispheric structured side, you have, you know, systematically structured objective knowledge on astronomy, mathematics, biology. And the fact that both of these are happening at the same time is is significant, because that's what happens in McGilchrist's opinion, when the two hemispheres are in a proper relationship. He says, McGilchrist says that all of these different um, discoveries and codification of knowledge, he says that in themselves, all of these represent enormous advances. And in terms of the thesis of this book, demonstrate the power for good that the left hemisphere wields when it acts as the emissary of the right hemisphere and has not yet come to believe itself the master. But this is, of course, what happens slowly over time. And here we enter Plato, uh, whose premises are the basis for philosophy for the next several thousand years, broadly speaking. Uh, and he says that Plato's legacy includes, quote, the left hemisphere congruent beliefs that the truth is in principle knowledge, that it is knowable through reason alone, and that all truths are consistent with one another. 
end quote. And this is where it starts to heat up because rationality becomes the only way, the only legitimate way of knowing the world. And things like the forms take it further, quote, this separation of the absolute and eternal, which can be known by logos from the purely phenomenological, which is now seen as inferior, leaves an indelible stamp on the history of Western philosophy for the subsequent 2000 years. The reliance on reason downsgrade not just the testimony of the senses, but all our implicit knowledge, end quote. And this is where it really gets bad, because when tuition is completely excised as a legitimate mode of being, rationality becomes the last thing that you have. He, uh, Miguel Chris quotes from Nietzsche talking about how there's a desperation in their refuge in rationality as the place that they can't trust their senses, they can't trust the outside world, so all they have left is reason. And once you get rid of intuition and, you know, uh, the things that one feels as opposed to the things that one reasons, the truths of things like narratives and myths become not just truths in a different sense, but they become fictions, they become lies. So metaphors, which are so core to the right hemisphere and approximately half of being in the world, those become lies as well. And it's not a coincidence, and it's fact for that very reason, that in the Republic, poets are banned and music is highly regulated to be purely utilitarian. Um, so this, of course, he says, has lots of downstream effects, but then he transitions to talk about the Romans to finish off the, uh, the mindset of the ancient world. <clears throat> um, and he notes that for some parts of the Roman Empire, uh, there are periods where there appears to be a proper balance in between the right and left hemispheres, but they mostly happen in the very early empire. And this is when you have all of Rome's best writers, where you have Ovid and Horace and Virgil, because they, they all write within 50 years of each other before the empire really starts to take off post-Augustus. And he talks about uh, Ovid's metamorphoses in particular as demonstrating the uh, Heraclitan sense of flux uh, in, in the world. And I want to read just part of the poem that McGilchrist puts here. Uh, quote, Full sail I voyage over the boundless ocean, and I tell you, nothing is permanent in all the world. All things are fluid, every image forms, wandering through change. Time itself is a river in constant movement, and the hours flow by like water, wave on wave, pursued, pursuing, forever fugitive, forever new. That which has been is not, that which was not begins to be. Motion and movement always in process of renewal. Not even the so-called elements are constant. Nothing remains the same. The great renewer, nature, makes form from form, and oh, believe me, that nothing ever dies. So for McGilchrist, if there was a little bit of the Apollonian at the tail end of the Greeks, in the Romans it really freewheels with the Roman military and the administration of its empire. And he notes that this increase in the Apollonian mode of things, you can see it across their architecture, their art. Uh, in their architecture, he, he notes how so many of the Roman towns were functionally copy-pasted just across the landscape. It was a civilization of self-promotion and assimilation that just sort of, you know, grew by, you know, hive-minding itself across the, the landscape. Uh, he says, uh, quote, Rome's greatness depended more on codification, rigidity, and solidity than it did on flexibility, imagination, and originality, end quote. And this was reflected, as I said, in their architecture, which became more and more standardized over time, more and more concrete was used. Uh, their sculpture lost uh, one aspect that had characterized it, that is its asymmetry of figures to show their uniqueness in favor of idealized forms. All the 
emperor statues over time converged. They all lost their, indiv their individuality and became the same figure. Uh, and in a strange way, the body and the face became symbols only, uh, sort of like a flesh is corrupt in its specificity. And it's the form of the body in, uh, you know, like a godlike sense. That's what's, what's good. And here martyrs that reject the body for spiritual truth uh, start to become or are able to stand in as heroes in this new way of looking at the world. Uh, so finally, the chapter addresses a theory put forward in the closing of the Western mind uh, that Christianity is responsible for this rigidity and intolerance and conformity uh, at the end of the Roman Empire. Uh, however, McGilchrist disagrees with this, at least slightly. Uh, he says, quote, what Freeman takes to be the contrast between Greek and Christian thought might be better seen, according to some scholars, as the contrast between, on the one hand, the flexibility of a way of thinking which can be found in the rich tradition of the early Christian fathers, as well as in the paganism with which it coexisted, where the hemispheres too cooperated, and, on the other hand, a culture marked by a concern with legalistic abstractions with correctness and the dogmatic certainties of the left hemisphere, whether Greek or Christian, which inexorably replaced them. And he speaks later of the Middle Ages. Uh, what was lacking was any concern with the world in which we live. Their gaze was firmly fixed on theory, abstractions, conceptions, and what could only be found in books. And finally, finishing up talking about the Dark Ages uh, and 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 the motivation that drew it, or that that drove it rather. Quote: The passion is for control, for fixity, for certainty, and that comes not with religion alone, but with a certain cast of mind, the cast of the left hemisphere. So he sees the decline of Christian thought, or if, or if, not, the or if not the decline, the imbalance of Christian thought as the same pathology that affected the Greeks with Plato, which is simply that the left hemisphere begins to take the center stage where that's not its role. And this is particularly tragic in the case of Christian thought, which has, he says, quote, the most powerful mythos in advocacy of the incarnate world and the individual. And it's quite sad to see it, at least in the Middle Ages, collapse into conformity and abstraction, just as the, the Greeks did. Uh, so to sum up the ancient uh, mind, chapter eight, uh, he sees the Greeks as an emergence or early Greek culture and the balance between the humanities on the one hand and uh, systematized objective knowledge on the other as a balanced relationship, a richness of culture, and an empire of the mind that can only emerge when the right and left hemispheres are in, are in a proper relationship and able to inform each other. But then later on, both with the Greeks, the Romans, and with the Christians, there was a slow rejection of the phenomenal world, and the balance of power began to shift decisively to the left hemisphere and to the Apollonian uh, state of mind. And as the emissary increasingly saw himself as the master, this empire of thought that had been expanded could no longer hold and collapsed. Well said. Yeah, I, I actually really do like uh, this. I, we, we throughout this time have kind of commented on how it's very easy to get this impression of right hemisphere, good left hemisphere, bad. And it's just kind of that simple. But when he brought up drama, I actually really liked that idea of drama and philosophy both being the former primarily right hemisphere, the latter prim primary left hemisphere, but both of them informing each other so well. Uh, note that dramas, and in this case, insert movies or books or what have you, that are philosophically illiterate, at best they're, enter they're entertaining, and that's about all you can get out of them. But dramas that are philosophically framed, that have passed, or that, ha that have taken from their left hemisphere their more dry, abstract counterpart, they are infinitely more memorable. They are kind of 
what's going to keep you going in the tough times. An abstract logical system uh, of ethics isn't going to really help out a ton when you're making a difficult choice, but a good story is, which I think fits perfectly in line with what McIntyre and Howard would argue for. And specifically with what McIntyre says, which I was just rereading this afternoon, talking about the Sophoclean tragedy. And if you remember the big problem at the center of the, of the Sophoclean tragedy is that there are two, there's a transcendent moral order to which the character is committed, as well as a particular one, and they're in conflict. And you have to figure out the, let's say, particular moral commitments, something more akin to the right hemisphere, as well as the universal moral commitments, something more akin to, to the left hemisphere. And the the tragedy is that there is a universal moral order to which you have to adhere, but it's difficult, if not impossible, for humans to fully and perfectly navigate the between the those two uh, obligations that they have, which of course then requires the intervention of a god to fix it. And that, I think, fits in perfectly with your idea of tragedy and drama as a space in which both can coexist, um, both the right and left hemisphere can coexist in a helpful and fruitful tension. Which, right, I, I mean, what a, what a distinctly right hemisphere phenomenon of, it, it incorporates paradox uh, quite well, and then it's also the right hemisphere is the more pessimistic and therefore the one most willing to accept the tragic nature of life. Well said. Yeah. Well, I was thinking about his bit on Christianity kind of becoming more abstract and dumbing itself down almost um, was not the rights of Gnosticism, which he doesn't get into as far as I saw. He doesn't mention Gnosticism at all, does he? I don't believe so, no. No. But I mean, I would attribute that to a large amount of the, um, the shift in Christianity from a contextual grounded physical um religion that can i uh, two thoughts on that first before i uh, or like early christianity it, it is interesting how so much of the battle line was between the gnostics and the yeah. not gnostics i suppose the agnostics as it were <laughs> um uh. in that so many of the church fathers were so preoccupied with keeping gnosticism at bay uh, and mm-hmm. it shows how important that is, because to your point, I think from my one friend that has uh, read this book and was recommending it to me, uh, my not Zach friend, he he does actually he says that he goes into uh, Reformation and how uh, I guess to give a little spoiler, kind of for all the faults of the medieval Catholic Church, the best thing about it was it was embodied, and Protestantism uh, came in and abstracted so much of it, mm-hmm. and it it kind of threw everything over to the left hemisphere's mm-hmm. uh, ball court. Yeah, the other interesting thing, so like part of the, I, I guess something to suss out that I don't necessarily have a complete thought on, but so there, there is the idea of, of Gnosticism, where the primary thing is in the mind, but more specifically, you know, you have the Gnosis, you have the, the secret knowledge that only you have of the world. So it, it does seem that, you know, if you had to put a, a gradient of types of interpretations of the world, um, at least part of the... Um, <clears throat> Part of the, the the project of the church in the Middle Ages or scholasticism uh, is to define what the top-down system of the world is, the chain of being, um, trying to build down all of the relationships, the cause and effect from the bottom up. But that's almost revealed, if you if you see what I'm saying, in in that it's that there's an explicit nature to be discovered and reasoned out as opposed to Gnosticism, which would seem to be almost like a worse version of that, where there is this order, but it's secret and you don't get to know what it is unless you join the the special club. So, yeah. 
But it's also, I mean, even using those words, I, I mean, this is going into kind of McGillicris style, but using those words, it's a knowledge that you know, it's all internal to you. Um, and it's a process versus Christianity, or at least authentic Christianity, non-Gnostic Christianity, which would be a bit more, I mean, I, I said contextual, but also outward focused on uh, to some degree. Right. Communal, I, Communal, yeah. with others. Yes. One one point of I would say po- uh, possibly critique uh, I would raise up was I uh, there is this strange rejection of uh, rationale in favor of experience, and I'm I'm not actually sure how comfortable I am with that. Uh, how I mean, who knows how many studies have shown that people's memories of their experience are not actually as accurate as we might like them to be, uh, and that your impression of a situation is not at times all that great. Uh, I one easy example, people oftentimes feel like they're not safe, even when they're in perfectly safe situations, perhaps after being inundated with news stations that are, you know, showing the most recent uh, travesties of the world and what have you. And it's easy to kind of get caught up in this idea that you're not safe because of a feeling. And that's when you actually need your reason most, not least. That's when you need your left hemisphere to kind of pull you out of that and say, wait, hang on, actually go through the arguments, go through the reasoning. Uh, you look at the facts, you're fine. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm not sure exactly how much I buy his whole Nietzschean rationale is the last resort after experience is gone and you know how tragic it is when you, that's all you have left. I mean, certainly you should have both, but I'm not sure how comfortable I am with him just being like, yeah, rationale, you know, whatever. I think I disagree, or at least want to push back, because when you have two people who are having, you know, a quote-unquote rational argument, um, if they disagree fundamentally about something, all you can really do is argue back to your premises. Which, in one way or another, are some kind of, yes, they could be logical statements or rational, you know, statements about the world, but they also do arise from sentiments and your impression of the world in some way. And when you have, and when you talk about something like, you know, viewing the news and feeling unsafe. I mean, news is really, and, and, and here is partially where I, it, it would be slightly unfair to characterize your argument like this. If you don't characterize it as rationality or no rationality, but instead more as right hemisphere dominant versus left hemisphere dominant, something like the news is incredibly left hemisphere dominant because it's facts and events abstracted completely from context and then represented to you as if they should be something that you pay attention to in your close reality, which were you not viewing that, your experience would be nothing like that unless you, you know, lived in Khartoum and like, you know, it was actually happening outside your window. Um, yeah, that's, so a, I, that's a fair response. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I mean, I think that this may be a huge stretch, but there are a few moments when the news, you can cut this out if you need to, but the news transcends into our everyday lives and our brains respond to that with just panic. Um I mean, I'm thinking about 9-11, right? And everybody can remember that because it so tangibly affected their everybody's lives. And it was actually a national, there was, I mean, there was a national danger at that moment. And so, um, I don't I mean, I, I, I'm not sure, I may be just like totally stretching this, but that may be the phenomenon that happens when we're trying to jump between those two without having the proper orientation or training to be able to do so. No, Sam, I think that's that's really good insight because the other thing to say with that though is that you're right that 9-11 was close to people because of a globalized 
rationalistic world where every factor affects every other factor, everything is very close to each other and everything does have the potential of collapsing like a stack of dominoes or a tower of cards. And, you know, that's the, like with the Roman empire, there's, there's a strength in stability and in rigidity and you can reduce shocks and you can reduce specific changes in the environment. But eventually when that rigidity collapses, it collapses very, very dramatically. And that's not, not necessarily 9-11, but, you know, the 2008-2009 financial crash is another example. It's interesting. I, I actually, for the most part, buy the idea of um, news stations being primarily left hemisphere dominant in that they are primarily uh, maze of mirrors is the uh, analogy Miguel Chris oftentimes uses. And I think that I, I remember it being first pointed out to me by Neil Postman and uh, amusing ourselves to death where he, he asked the the reader so when is the last time you read a news article or you watched a news broadcast and it changed any aspect of your life at all other than the weather and other than maybe how you vote uh and i remember being stunned by realizing i can't think of the last time it did um maybe for like nationwide protests i think that probably would count in that uh people actually did see those uh those news articles and did act but i mean that's such a rare thing that's a at most, maybe once a year, once every few years, mm-hmm. uh, that it will actually spur on tangible action. Most of the time, it's you passively watch, consume, and that's it. It remains an abstraction. So, yeah, actually, for the most part, I do buy news stations are going to be more left hemisphere mode of being. And to kind of further go along this weird tangent that we're on, um, I mean, when they cut into our everyday life. And I'm thinking of around this time last year, when we started to hear kind of bubblings of this weird virus in Wuhan, and you get a you get a multiplicity of truths, because everything's completely abstracted from context. And so it's very easy for one new state side, because those two ideas can rest next um, with slapdash it is and how fast it moves in between things. And whenever it's like, oh, like here's some right hemisphere and some left hemisphere stuff. So maybe there was some but mostly it was the other thing. Um, you know, that's fine. Uh, we're just going to skip on, on by that because it was fun to read. And uh, we're just going to laugh our way through the apocalypse uh, with Saurabh Amari in We Laugh, They Rule, uh, Stephen's article pick for this week. Indeed. This article, a uh, short but not really sweet at all. Not, not Actually, very, very spicy. Very spicy. Um, so we brought up uh, Amari last or two weeks ago. Uh, I think that was Sam's article, um, kind of the, the battle between Amari and David French. Uh, David French being the much more moderate, let's get everyone working together. Uh, Amari being the apocalypse, conservatism is under attack. We need to batten down the hatches, kind of going so far as to say like, yep, Trump is actually doing a great strategy with a lot of this. And so I was I was browsing first things looking for an article and actually found uh, Amari and mixed feelings on it. But uh, we'll, I'll, I'll do the summary and then we can discuss. Um, so this was his response to Representative Cleaver's opening prayer for the 117th Congress a few weeks ago. In case you've been uh, living blissfully under a rock, and indeed you're better for it. Uh, unaware of some of the more cringy gaps that we've been putting up with here on the surface, Represent- Representative Cleaver, himself an ordained United Methodist minister, closed with or closed his opening prayer with, uh, quote, In the name of the monotheistic God, Brahma, and God, known by many names, of by many faiths, Amen and a woman. End quote. Uh, so clearly two things are noteworthy here. First, this sort of generic deity is pretty surprising coming from an ordained minister. I mean, 
a la Dave Bentley Hart, I readily nod my head in agreement that most religions have some common understanding of God as such, not as a proper noun, but rather as the big B being of being, existence, reality, etc., etc. However, I'd also be pretty quick to point out that that doesn't necessitate religions closing their prayers by clarifying that they mean to include other faiths in it, but that's besides the point. Theological, ecclesiological, nitpicking aside, it was the etymology that shook Amari quite uh, thoroughly. Listeners may recall me bringing an article a couple years ago entitled The Nervous Laughter of the Super Bowl's Robot Ads. And there is something kind of a very similar feel coming from this article. I uh, quote, I wonder which two modes we are of laughter we are dealing with here. Do we laugh with confidence that the American people will in time overcome such manifest lunacy? Or is it rather the bitter laughter familiar to people long accustomed to enduring absurd rule? As recently as two or three years ago, I would have picked the former. These days, I'm inclined to think it's the latter, end quote. Uh, the laughter being the numerous puns made uh, of the kind of nonsensical ending. Um, he cites proposals such and as... Our, um, our season three preview oh, as well. Yep, which I was very proud of. That was good. That was that was well done, guys. <laughs> we'll pat ourselves on the back. I mean, it just it's so, it's so readily critical. It's wonderful. Um <laughs> So, um, he cites proposals such as the uh, Democratic majority to eliminate all so-called non-gender inclusive language, such as father, mother, son, daughter, brother, sister. And he finds himself growing more and more concerned that this is not something that is going to stop out of realizing some of its own nonsense. And even if it does eventually stop, he fears, quote, a prolonged woke regime, one powerfully capable of insulating its elites from criticisms while below or from below while punishing dissent within elite ranks, end quote. Uh, listeners will recall our last discussion. Um, I, I think this article serves as a prime example of the apocalyptic vision Amari sees. And admittedly, he does paint a pretty scary picture. Uh, ideas antithetical to conservatism, and indeed, in my opinion, antithetical to a healthy society, have long per- percolated in the ivory tower, and they've now made it over to its silicon counterpart. And between the two, they are exist- exerting more and more pressure on society for ideas from things like critical theory at all, which... Incidentally, I have a rant about the word theory, but we'll save that for the end. Apocalyptic visions are fine and weirdly fun to read. Admittedly, I find myself closer closer to the nervous laughter camp. Uh, well, it does appear that the average person rolls their eyes at the idea of scooping out the man part of a word which has no etymological connection to the masculine at all and replacing it with the word woman. Uh, the fact that we've gotten absurd enough that this is something a representative both of the country but also of the United Methodist Church does something like this, it certainly leaves me chuckling, but also at least eyeing the nearest escape sign. Um, after all, as this title is, uh, article is titled and Mike drops at the end, quote, we laugh, they rule, uh, end quote. So it's an interesting article. I think he's a little bit alarmist. I mean, we talked about him a couple weeks ago. He is very much of the opinion that our society is about to, to burn. I could, see, I could see there being a significant pushback, not from this particular thing. Obviously, it was just a silly political gaffe and, you know, we're all kind of moving on. But... I mean, there ha- there are trends of a uh, not alt conservatism, but neo conservatism that is do- does seem a little bit better equipped to handle uh, this sort of stuff than Amari's very extreme. Well, let's just kind of go do the Trump strategy and just burn it all down and be super combative, which just doesn't seem to be helpful at all. Yeah, I mean, my big I guess I read this article and I hadn't read a ton of Amari beforehand. I, I spent a lot more time with with them. Um, David French, but I think my biggest critique to Amari comes down to, and, and this critique to this whole movement, is the lack of connection, at least from my perspective, between 
inconsistency and oppression is basically like the the argument that i see consistently is that the left is inconsistent they require they 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 say masks are bad and they say they're not bad they say avoid gatherings and then support protests they you know are against they're for protests and then against protests they're contradicting themselves and it's oppressive and i just don't understand that connection i think it's a false i think it's a fallacious connection and really just equates to I mean, borderline whining. Um, there's not much of an argument there. And so, Actually, David, oh. It's just, sorry, go on, go on. No. Well, David French was responding to this on one of his podcasts the other day where he was basically like, so so what if they're inconsistent? If they're inconsistent and they're speaking out, you know, against these protests when they were supporting um, previous protests, the job of the right should not be to call out that. It should be to critique these protests and stand against them stronger than the left is in order to stand above their noise. Um, we shouldn't be adding to it. We need to actually be transcending it in our affirmation of the good, the beautiful. Actually, I, I really like the way you phrased it, like the whining. It, like it, Reading the article, it really was this him complaining about a lot of stuff, which admittedly, it's stuff I disagree with, but mm -hmm. he offers no constructive ideas it's just more things are bad things are bad things are bad isn't that bad it's like okay okay man also i i, I do wonder how much of his rhetoric is or how much of the kind of weird uh here's a contradictive here's a contradiction therefore oppression i wonder if that is just kind of a function of him being a bad rhetorician in that he is con trying to give reasons for them being wrong and kind of conflating them with and they're also being oppressive. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I would say this is one of the, like, I've seen this line of argument all over social media, and this is probably one of the stronger attempts I've seen made at making the argument. Um, this stronger rhetorically. So let me try and rescue this argument from itself. Um, and I suppose you can tell me whether or not you think in, in terms, but when it's enshrined in power is much more significant than inconsistency without power. Inconsistency with power is will to power, which is whatever we say now goes, and it doesn't matter if we contradicted ourselves from five minutes ago, which is much more dangerous because what that is, is that we're not going to make sense. We're going to change what the, what the standard is depending on the moment. And if you don't follow us with every movement of our changing standards, then you're morally suspect. And I think that's, that's the stronger version is that when that is, when the inconsistency is combined with a level of ability to allow or block access or to define some things as acceptable and non-acceptable, that's when it becomes quasi-totalitarian. That's when it becomes, you know, today, this is extreme. Don't mm -hmm. take me figuratively, not literally, but, you know, two plus two is four today, two plus two is five tomorrow. That's inconsistent and we can whine about that, but if they can enforce it, then it's something more than just whining about it. Or it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's pointing that out isn't just whining. It's, it's actually protesting against something more mm -hmm. and that's and that's kind of where the argument yeah and that's that, and, and that's definitely where i see it is saying like we support freedom of speech unless we don't or mm -hmm. you know twitter and facebook saying we want open forums of communication to share human knowledge and create better communities except if you're a republican and mm -hmm. so that's where i think like jack Dor uh dorsey's like comments on banning trump were really interesting where he was basically like it's really sad that we had to do this it represents a failure on our part and it's just so overly idealistic um but yeah i can see how that could be construed as being oppressive as well i think there is something uh kind of kafka-esque 
that that arises from a situation uh, like the one that ostensibly Amari is describing, but Brevin just articulated better, was or in that if the rules are always changing, you do, you don't know when you're breaking them, and that sort of power dynamic is a pretty scary one, admittedly, if you never know what action to take or if it's going to be enforced or not. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. to your point, that's a decent rejoinder. Yeah, and, and, and to be fair, I'm not saying that Amari is necessarily making this argument well or that that state exists, but merely pointing out, or but just I, I want to defend the argument that in, that pointing out in inconsistency can be more than whining given certain conditions. Maybe, maybe one of the issues is that the article was just just so short. Uh, in that, it, I mean, it wasn't much more than probably a page and a half or so, maybe two pages. And it, it didn't. See, I, I wish he had taken at least some amount of time to say. So here's the inconsistencies. Here are some of the things I see as being a problem. Here's what I think we should do about it. Or it had some sort of constructive, or even here are the things that I see as being a problem, and here's why they're a problem. Here's where things are, are heading if we keep going down this road. It just, it just didn't... I, I, again, I, I feel like I'm actually being overly, almost overcompensating uh, in my critique on it because I do fundamentally agree with a lot of these kind of things being absurd. He just didn't seem to really contribute much to the table, though. Yeah, I, I mean, I think there is something sort of, you know, inherently dangerous and bad to the discourse, like making a short statement without a whole lot of context, just like expressing like whatever your emotion is at the moment. Like this is the oh, like this thing. Oh, I'm so mad about this one thing, but then not providing anything constructive. Um, and I think that could, that's just really bad for America for discourse and honestly, just for our civilization itself. So, uh, speaking of that, let's go on to our rants. Um <laughs> Sam, what do you have for us? Um, I have a very, very short rant. Um, I think that we can maybe agree that there are problems with the liberal order, however deep they are. I disagree. Um, it's fine. There are problems. And Everything's things fine. are absurd. But I disagree with Amari, Amari strongly on the solution, which is his support for Trump. Um, I hope that uh, President Trump is remembered with equal or greater antagonism than Nixon for the request that he made to the Justice Department uh, that came out over the past week. Um, I wish I was surprised by the news and the credible information on these uh, requests to overturn the election, or at least requests to shake up the leadership in the Justice Department or to bring a case to the Supreme Court to overturn the election. Um, however, I'm not surprised, and it is rant-worthy. All right. Uh, uh, Stephen. So uh, I, I mentioned in the article, uh, so I've rant about the word theory uh theory especially in academic context so uh the the concept of critical theory was brought up uh, several times in this uh in this article and i i hear the word theory thrown out a lot especially with uh kind of like quasi um kind of newer fields and it's it's a strange thing in that adding theory to the end of any concept immediately grants it legitimacy and it is it is insane it doesn't work like that you can't just Add so it takes some random field. Add theory behind uh, behind it. That's that's the that's the word from STEM, specifically from math. That's our word. You can't take that from us. Quit quit stealing our word. Set theory is a a, a formal field. Gender theory is it's not a theory. It, it's not a field. It, it, sure, it's a new field, and I'm sure there's some legitimacy to it, maybe. But like, it's not nearly as rigorous as math. And quit. Find a different word. You don't. You don't get the same legitimacy as set theory. I it just. It just bugs me. I mean, I don't know. I've gotten probably four to eight million dollars from the National Science Foundation for my gerbil theory um, uh, 
the studies, but exactly. Know. Well, but as a theory, I mean, what is theory then, Stephen? Is it, so, ab- is it is it like an abstract, concrete uh, premise or? It typically, it denotes it typically denotes a a rigor within the field. Um, so set theory, it's you are you are constructing a very firm mathematical found foundation from which you can build pretty much all of math. Uh, that is the foundation. There are a few different ways you can do it, but set theory is one of the prime ways. So an internal foundation that you can build outwards from versus an external viewing and processing of the context in oh, order math, to see the whole. Math is very abstract. I made no, <laughs> I never made any claims. We've already been over this. The, t- the two fields that are most likely to get schizophrenia are philosophy followed closely by engineering. We, I, I know I'm in the danger field here, guys. <laughs> Danger zone. <laughs> all Danger right. Theory. Danger theory. Perfect. Uh, all right. So uh, for my rant, uh, I have recently reread C.S. Lewis's timeless essay, Men Without Chests. Uh, so I have two main aspects to this. First, one, it's a good essay, and you should go read it. If you haven't read it, go read it. If you've read it before, read it again. It's There's lots to work with there. Uh, but one thing that I took away and that I wanted to rant about is... This concept of chests that C.S. Lewis talks about, and it's particularly relevant this week because of our reading and talking about the ancient world and the ancient man as his, there wasn't a separate word for will in ancient Greek, but there was the word for chest. That was where your emotions resided. That's where you emerged out of the the flow of things. That's how you responded to uh, the pressures of the world around you. And that was the center of your being as a person. I don't think in the modern world, and certainly not as adults, that we put much work into developing our chests. We don't try to build our own emotional pectorals, as it as it were. Uh, and for C.S. Lewis, chests are emotions organized by trained habit into stable sentiments that allow us to recognize and properly respond emotionally to the objective world that we see around us. So that means recognizing and appreciating be- beauty being repulsed by evil in all its forms, recognizing good stories from bad ones. And that's a universal thing. That's the Tao that C.S. Lewis talks about. Is that this is something that all ancient good cultures talk about. And I think there's this, there's a thing, and this is tempered by the conversation in the reading group that I have, we almost always only think about this in terms of children and training them up to try to have proper emotional responses. But adults need chests too. And if our educations are as deficient as the one that C.S. Lewis writes about, or even if we've just imbibed a little bit too much of left hemispheric whatever from our culture, that's something that we need to work on on ourselves, that we need to not just academically know things, but we need to recognize that emotions are a part of us that are good and need to be changed and developed in order to be a proper chest, and that there are better and worse sets of sentiments, better and worse chests to, to have, and we need to take the time to actually build those up. That's all. The Abolition of Man is a good book. Excellent stuff. I've been meaning to re- uh, revisit it. We're working through the uh, the three chapters for my reading group. So, very, nice. very fun. One, for, for one of my reading groups, I should say. I guess I have three if I include you guys. Oh, you're cheating on us? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know what? But hey, it's with encyclicals, so it's fine. I'm honored to be cheated on by an encyclical. <laughs> I don't. Okay, so you know how there are sentences <laughs> that are said for the first time that have never been formulated in human history. I think that's one of them. I'm honored to be cheated on with an encyclical. <laughs> Sam, yeah, 2021, never been said before. Put that down in the record. When Sam becomes famous, we'll pull this one out. Yep. Great. I'm not sure what kind of 
slander it could bring upon me, but probably some kind. All right. Uh, any final thoughts, boys? I take that as a no. That sounds oh. like some good chess theory, I guess. Sure. Ch- chess theory. <laughs> chess theory. Chess, hey, chess theory. I like it. Uh, all right. So uh, for everyone here at the Problem with Reading podcast, uh, I'm Brevin. I'm, I'm Steven. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> no, we're not doing this. We're not doing this. For everyone here at the Problem with Reading podcast, I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. And I'm Sam. Respectfully in third, where he belongs. See y'all in two weeks. Ah. So that's what you meant. I thought you. I thought you were just going to comment after Brevin. I didn't think you were going to oh, go no. like upend the whole system. Intro. <laughs> that was good. That was really good. Thank you, Jeremiah. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um. All right. Is that who's following us? Because we have like two followers on SoundCloud. Or no, yeah. we're following like two people. That that's oh Jeremiah. yeah yeah there we go. yeah yep. that's me following him by accident. But I just yep that's to... yeah we were following too. I think but also, also he made Chris. the music for the show. So oh yeah no I'm fine with yeah. that. Jeremiah, if you're listening, thank you. It's mm-hmm. good stuff. It's catchy and it, it's it's lasted. It, it stayed relevant. I'm I'm still very happy with it as a, oh yeah as an intro. No, it's great. Okay. Whenever I listen to it, like I I expect that music now. I associate it with ah problem ring. It's starting. That's great. No, the one thing that I will say though is that. Okay, so you know how sea shanties are, are currently like the big thing right now? Are they? I mean, I'm, God, I'm not are. complaining, but no. You guys need to be on the internet more. Um, <laughs> they are. I don't understand but, it. I mean, I've, I've known friends who listen to sea shanties for years. Yeah, okay. So, but, but like, no joke, like, probably less than a month ago, I, to, Sam, I think I told this to you, right? Didn't I tell you to, to make me a, um, no, did I not do it to you? Well, fine. I, I told yeah. Jeremiah and maybe one of my other, musical friends i forget who it was um to make uh you know the what do you do with a drunken sailor what do you oh, do no, you with did a ask me to do sailor this. what do you do with a drunken sailor lie in the morning uh and turn that into like a modern anthem of some kind um but mm-hmm. neither you nor jeremiah has taken me up on that but had you done no. that you would be leading the spotify charts right now <laughs> i'm a goddamn prophet could have gotten ahead of the curve mm-hmm. all right let's get going <sighs>